Good morning, good evening, good afternoon, everybody out there in podcast land. You are tuned to another episode of Intrinsic Motivation from a Homie's Perspective. This is Hamza, and really excited to speak with our guest today. And it made me think of of 9-11. So shout out to all the folks, all the 9-11 babies out there. Uh, I see some similar sentiments today. And and before we get started, shout out to all the entertainers and DJs that have been entertaining us during uh, our issues and concerns that we're going through globally. And as a result, I'm seeing a lot of comments of people being stuck in the house and that they're going to have uh, corona babies. Well, what happens if that happens, if you're pregnant during this time? Uh, what does that really mean? We actually have an expert today. He's the, a doctor. He's delivered an OBGYN who has delivered more than 6,000 babies, including those of multiple births like myself. So shout out to all the twins and plus that over the decades. Um, he has not even lost a mom in those instances. So we're going to talk about what does it take or what should uh, you plan for to have the best case scenario if you are pregnant during the pandemic. And without further ado, I'd like to welcome Dr. Alan Lindemann to the podcast. Welcome, Dr. Lindemann. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate being here. We're here to talk a little bit about maternal mortality today. One of the problems we have in the United States is that we're going in the wrong direction. In other words, we rank 56 in the world as far as quality of obstetric care. With our ratio, the ratio has gone from 8 to in 100,000 to 28 per 100,000 in 2003, according to the Institute of Health Metrics. Uh, one of the big problems is that we have disparity. In other words, if you're uh, Caucasian, your rate is better. If you're um, Afro-American, it's not so good. It can range up as high as 40. And, of course, um, we run now, if we look at our 19 per 100,000, uh, we will rank 56 along with Oman, Latvia, Ukraine, and Moldova. Now, I think just that, introductory statement is enough to ask a million questions. First of which, you know, we have that proclivity to believe that the United States is number one, especially in technology and all of the increases or technology increases we've had over the last couple of decades. And to say that we're ranked 56 may not sit to a lot of people. So, I mean, that's a reality check that you just gave out in that definition. One of the things, to bring this point home, um, American women who are pregnant today are 50% more likely to die in the period surrounding childbirth than were their own mothers. Now, granted, those numbers aren't a lot, but still, if you happen to be one of those statistics, it's 100%, and -hmm. we're going in the wrong direction. Uh, Hmm. I'm sorry. No, I'm just saying when, when that happens, are, are we saying, I mean, I'm trying to make apples to apples comparison. Is this someone that is going to the doctor in the first trimester and, and, and doing all the right things, or are these the, the mothers that are waiting until the last minute to actually uh, get prepared to delivering a baby? Well, you're absolutely right. Access to care is important, and sometimes it happens to be because people aren't motivated, but a lot of times they are motivated and they do 
try to do a good job with pregnancy. I do have a little story for you if you'd like to hear it. It's about Lauren, and she's a 33-year-old lady who died five, after she, five hours after she delivered. And this Go has for been it. On, this has been on uh, NPR and uh, uh, ProPublica. So Warren, Lauren rather was 33 years old. She was a NICU nurse, that is, a neonatal intensive care nurse. Her husband was an orthopedist, so she should have had the best care that money can buy, literally. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, she came in, she delivered the baby. She, they noticed that she had high blood pressure, uh, so they shut off the uh, blood pressure monitoring device. She developed epigastric pain, which is probably because her liver was capsule was rupturing, so they increased the epidural. Um, she developed signs of a stroke, so they called the neurosurgeon, and he couldn't do anything because he didn't have platelets. So this is uh, what the CDC calls delay and denial, and this is a lady to whom this should not have happened. Not that it should happen to anybody, but she did all the right things. Wow. And this is during regular times, so this isn't even during what's happening with COVID-19 and, and the stresses being in the hospital now. That's exactly right. It, it was, um, like I said, these things happen to everybody, and that's part of our um, increasing maternal mortality ratio. So, One thing in I'm here in Atlanta. So in Georgia, uh, during the governor's race, uh, one big push was that they wanted to bring more hospitals to the state because in the rural areas, a lot of the hospitals have closed. And I know that you talk a lot about maternity deserts. Can you give the definition of maternity deserts and the ramifications of that? Well, I would say a maternity desert would be where there are no um, there's no opportunity of having a vaginal birth or a cesarean section. For example, where we live now, it's a very sparse county, and there are two people per square mile, if you can imagine that. Hmm. Well, the closest hospital for us would be about 70 miles. Most of the people who live here drive 85 miles, and you know it gets cold here in the winter, so you don't need to be delivering in the car on your way to the hospital at midnight and when it's 30 below zero. So that's one of the risks we have. There's a lot of reasons that we don't have obstetrics here or in little hospitals, but part of it is because the American College um, prefers to have deliveries done in larger places. As a matter of fact, there are some numbers which indicate that larger places have less morbidity. Mm-hmm. But I think the solution is, and there is a solution out there. There's this group of people, and I don't remember their name. But anyway, they go around educating uh, rural uh, doctors and nurses on how to do better deliveries. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, with the rural doctors, is there a relationship? I'm top. You said two person per. I mean, just the, the the population is so different in North Dakota as, as it is here in in Metro Atlanta. Um, but are there relationships with the the urban doctors and the rural doctors? Well, we of course send patients to see them, so we have that much. But there's very little information that comes back, and what comes back, and it's like a computer. 
uh, confetti. You know, you get 85 pages of something that doesn't say anything. Mm-hmm. Hmm. And I'm, I'm thinking of a doctor, uh, a friend here, and she's an OBGYN, but she delivers so many babies a day, and she works ungodly hours. And so when you're saying uh, that maternity desert, uh, you know, you, is it pra- not so much practice makes perfect, but how do you ensure when you're delivering so many babies that you won't have this mater- uh, maternal co- uh, corbidity? The, uh, I think, you know, like as you ex- explained that I have never had a mother die from a stroke or die from anything else. And, of course, I have not had anybody who's actually gone into eclampsia. In other words, there's been no seizures. Mm-hmm. And what I think is very, very important, and that this is a take-home lesson today, everybody needs to watch their blood pressure. Sometimes nurses will check blood pressures until they get a low one. But it's the high ones that count. For example, I had a patient, a 15-year-old lady, and I got she was referred to me when she was in labor, but... Her prenatal blood pressure was 90 over 40, and uh, so when, when she came in, she was 130 over 90. I think she was probably one of the sickest people I ever saw. So if you, all you're going to do is look at a, a particular blood pressure, you're going to be missing things. Mm. And the second take-home message is labs. Um, labs for pregnancy are different. So if you... If you get them confused, if you start using labs for non-pregnant people, your pregnant patient will not do well. Mm. When you talk about the blood pressure, are you ta- I mean, are you talking about a person's diet and what and their natural overall health before they became pregnant, and the fluctuations once they become pregnant? Is there a difference in uh, I'd like to know that as far as preparing to get pregnant versus, you know, what do I do now that I am pregnant? Well, you're absolutely right. You really do want to have a start with a healthy lifestyle, and, of course, you'd like to have a normal blood pressure, but you don't always have that, and that doesn't mean that a pregnancy has to be bad or have a bad outcome. I had another patient who came in with a blood pressure of 150 over 90 for her first visit, we watched her carefully during pregnancy. Nothing really bad happened to her, and she delivered a nine-pound baby at term. So the thing to understand about blood pressure is that it's relative. Mm-hmm. What is good for that particular person? Mm-hmm. Um, now, this is under normal circumstances, so I guess the assumption would be that the blood pressure and additional stress would be elevated during a time like this. I mean, wouldn't it, wouldn't it, uh, it would mean that you need to really watch blood pressure even more now than ever? Well, yes, you'd have to do that. The biggest problem with COVID and pregnancy is that women who are pregnant have, are very prone to um, pneumonia and other lung mm-hmm. infections, and they can get to be very sick in a big hurry. So that's really the only difference between a COVID pregnancy and a non-COVID pregnancy. You have to be careful. You have to watch those lungs and that breathing really carefully. Um, And it brings up the issue of what happens to the baby. I read an article a few days ago. It was from China. 
They had done a C-section on a lady there who had had, she tested COVID positive. Mm-hmm. And, but the baby tested COVID negative and had IgG and IgM antibodies. So the baby had developed COVID during pregnancy and had done its, made its own immunity. Mm. So that's good news for the baby and probably good news for the mom. Mm. Now, this is when the baby was born immediately, right? Uh, I mean, when the pregnancy was actually happen, happening. What about, I mean, this is going on. I mean, the timetables are so different. And I wish everyone was on the same page, but it seems like the timetable is mid to late January. So what if the baby was born and it's a couple of weeks old? What what kind of what happens to the baby as far as uh, exposure to COVID-19 would have the same outcome? You have to be very careful with babies under one month. Um, when they get to be, say, oh, six or eight months, it's less of a problem. As a matter of fact, a lot of children don't even really get, you don't even really know they have anything. I mean, it could be just a plain old cold. But, again, you'd have to be watching respirations and uh, um, to be really ready to treat um, any kind of respiratory distress, whether it's with um, um, an in, you know, intubation and um, um, assisted ventilation, or whether it's antibiotics. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, when we're talking lifestyle, and, and let's just for argument's sake, had a, I had a very stressful lifestyle. Um, I, uh, as a, you know, I can't speak for other women, but you know, they're working just as many hours as their male, their spouse, or their counter, their counterpart, and so they had a very stressful life, and now they are pregnant during this time are there any exercises or breathing techniques that you could suggest that would lower their blood pressure um actually yes um we spent i've spent a lot of time over the years try look finding dealing with exactly this problem that is everybody has some stress and uh, of course you watch their blood pressure very carefully and sometimes i would see them um once a week, you know, rather than once a month. Um, a lot of times I, sent, I told them to buy their own blood pressure cuff and take their own blood pressure once a day so they get a handle on it, figure out what raises it and what lowers it. But one of the most effective things, when all else fails, I have them cut down on their work. For example, rather than working an 8- or 12-hour day, I ask them to work a 4- or a 6-hour day. We watch their blood pressure, and if it still doesn't go down, we just keep them at home. That's the simplest mm-hmm. thing to do with most blood pressures. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure it would help to actually have that doctor's note. I, I've witnessed some different scenarios where um, the the pressure at work is to work until you have a baby, you know, and so they don't either want to lose their place in the, the pecking order to continue to grow within the company, so they may continue to stress themselves even if they are at work? Are you seeing people that are, you give them that prognosis, but then they refuse it? Are you seeing that? Actually, that's very seldom. Most women um, grow to like their pregnancies and to put the health of the baby first. Mm -hmm. Um, 
and it gets to be very maternal. Even dads get to be paternal, you know, before the baby's born. And that's one of the fun things about prenatal care. You can go along with that trip. In other words, um, make sure that it's happening. I love it. I, I want to ask you, uh, th- this is something that I've always uh, remarked on, but now that I have an OBGYN on the call, I do want to ask. There, there was a TV show called Malcolm in the Middle. Are you familiar with that TV show? I am familiar with the name, but I don't know. I couldn't tell you who's Malcolm. But I oh, no worries. Once or twice. Sure. So where I'm going with this is they, the family is a, a nuclear family. You know, they have three kids and what have you. Malcolm's a genius, and he has an older brother and a younger brother. And so when Malcolm was born, before he was born, they played a lot of classical music. They talked to the baby. You know, it was very nurturing. And the third baby that was born, you know, it was kind of like, oh, we're, we already have two kids, right? So <laughs> we're probably not on top of it. And we're, we're, uh, we have the baby by the microwave when we're cooking and what have you. Uh, are, was that part of comedy or is that true as far as uh, talking to the baby, keep it, staying in a relaxed environment and staying away from uh, RF or radio frequencies or microwaves? I do believe that it was it's most sensible to stay away from things that you think might be harmful, like uh, cell phones, microwaves, um, cats, you know, the litter box, um, dogs, sometimes you can't always predict what they're going to be doing. And the other thing is, babies like music. They, as a matter of fact, I would say they're quite happy with music. They also recognize the voices. I'm quite certain that they knew my voice a lot of times um, after they came out because they had heard it while they were in their mothers. I love that, and so that takes it back to the husbands. Meaning, if if we have if they're stressed, don't bring it around the misses because the babies are going to hear that as well, and they'll take on the stress. Yep, that is exactly right. I do believe that the babies will feel the stress. Uh, as a matter of fact. Uh, Helping women and men through a normal pregnancy is very rewarding. Uh, I mean, the thing about that a lot of people may not understand about pregnancy is that you can steer it. In other words, there's a lot of choice you have about how this is going to work, mm-hmm. especially when it comes to bonding afterwards. You know, how do I manage this? Uh, can I sleep and breastfeed? Can Do I have to wake up at 2 o'clock in the morning? Uh, all that stuff. When you we talk about when the baby after the baby's born and just that, like you said, that bonding. How important is it to have uh, mother's milk versus uh, the stuff on the shelf? Well, let's say this: in the, fir- the first place, they have to eat, and that's one of the problems we have today because they get kicked out of the hospital too soon. When mm-hmm. I was a student. We had a very good old head nurse there, and she'd say, well, I think this baby isn't eating quite right yet. I think they need another day of learning how to eat and breastfeed. And we had those choices. We could keep the patient. It was a legitimate concern, and they could go home when they were ready to go home. There was a recent study that showed that the C-section babies had fewer returns to the Uh, emergency room uh, for failure to thrive. And 
it mm. correlates with the amount of time the mother spent in the hospital and the whether or not they could they knew what they were doing as far as breastfeeding when they went home. Mm. As far as my advice, I tell it told all my patients the baby has to eat. So it doesn't matter. I mean, it's better to give it um, the, the canned food that you get at the store than to give it nothing or to give it not enough. Mm-hmm. But ideally, I would say it, you can do both, and that's where the milk league is kind of out in orbit. In other words, they say, well, if you breastfeed, if you bottle feed, sometimes you can't breastfeed, but actually you can do both, and that helps Dad out too. And a lot of the conversation has been about a mother having one child, but you've had multiple births and even quads. Are there any differences with dealing with multiple babies? It seems like we're getting more multiple births now more than ever with the uh, the added prescriptions that parents are getting. Well, certainly we have in vitro, you know, and they want to implant for um, embryos. And, uh, of course, then if they get four babies, they want to um, – negate two of them so that's the thing that my quads patient didn't want to do in other words uh, she wasn't going to choose which two were going to live that's how we got into the quads and you know with her I think that certainly I saw her every week and um, listened to her and We have done a videotape on, or a video on this, and we're going to try to get it onto the, uh, onto our site soon. But the dad was a very good dad. He said he changed seven thousand diapers a month. (laughs) But who's counting? (laughs) Thousand. That's a lot of diapers. (laughs) A lot of diapers. I want to ask you, because you said with the in vitro, uh, you know, you you plan for four, and then you can decide uh, if you have less than that. And it made me think of the movie Gattaca, which is an an obscure movie. It had come out in the uh, mid-1990s, and uh, Gattaca is what what is it, the the strands of the spinal system, so ATGC. And what they were doing was identifying the the strongest traits in the children. And if the children didn't have that the strongest trait, then they wouldn't have that child. Is it in 2020, is it easier to determine uh, certain strengths or uh, intelligence levels or uh, autism before the child's born? Um, well, yes and no. Certain things can be found before the child is born. Um, <clears throat> Uh, for example, um, various lung disorders. Um, if I uh, forget, I, the word is escaping me right now. Anyway, it's a autosomal recessive, um, and if the children get it, they get very sick, you know, breathing trouble. Um, you not we cannot uh, yet test for intelligence. That is probably way down the road, and. Uh, see what else i forgot the other thing you asked sure i mean it seems like more so now than ever there's more children identified as autistic and i wondered if that was an identifier before the baby was born you know i just read an article that associated preeclampsia and um 
autism or ADHD, and actually sometimes um, less than average intelligence. What I don't know is I don't think there's any amniocentesis or any other test that would tell us these things, but we're beginning to look at uh, all the potential problems of preeclampsia. So we will ultimately see a day in a not-too-distant future where that can be identified? We're, I would say, looking for uh, ADH, you know, identifiers for those things, but I think that's down the road a long way. It's not going to happen in my lifetime, I'm quite certain of that. Uh, Well, what have you seen in the 6,000 babies and your decades of, of experience, has there been huge leaps in technology or it's still pretty much when you first got out of med school? One of the things that I have seen over the years is you take two steps forward and one step back. Um, mm-hmm. Sometimes the things that come out new are not exactly uh, helpful. For example, I just read an article a couple of days ago um, about, um, I forgot what I was going to say. <laughs> anyway, uh, ask me another question. I'll try to give you a <laughs> Sure. I, I, was, I was just reading um, your background about when we were going to talk about the, the pandemic and what have you, and you were talking about um, the too, there's too much of a reliance on C-sections. And my, I, I guess I have two questions. One are there so many C-sections because it's easier or is there, I know that it was a a somewhat questionable, um, maybe a conspiracy that hospitals actually encourage C-sections because it got the mothers out of the hospital quicker. Well, the part of the problem with C-sections is that everything that is being done presently incents a cesarean section. In other words, it, it makes a cesarean more reasonable to do. For example, it's very simple to do a cesarean section for a surgeon or an obstetrician. It takes probably 20 minutes. And most C-section patients do well. They don't get sick. They don't have trouble with their <coughs> kidneys or any other complications, no infections, uh, transfusions. So uh, it's easier. The other problem is that it's you get paid more. So why not uh, make more money and work less? So you've got those two problems. And then, of course, you have the lawyers uh, in on it. And, uh, of course, when you get into court, the lawyers say, well, if, you've done, if, you, hadn't, if you had done a C-section, you would have had a better outcome. So there's that that, that worries all of us all the time. In other words, everything that could have been done has been done. Wow. So that takes me to the next question about the uh, more alternative side where people are having uh, babies underwater or having them at home. Is that no longer encouraged just from a litigation standpoint? Well, it's kind of interesting what you're talking about. This is very controversial, babies at home. Mm -hmm. Uh, the American literature, they say that the fetal death rate is four times for home births than it is uh, for hospital births. On the other hand, 
if you look at many of our countries that do very well, you know, they have a, a maternal mortality ratio of two or three. For example, Denmark, um, they see midwives and they there do their deliveries at home. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's um, so I think the important thing is it should be safe now, or continuous in order to be safe. Um, we, one of the big problems that we have in, med- in medicine today is fragmentation of care. Uh, my own daughter, had, she had, had a baby. She had um, Hodgkin's. She had uh, chemotherapy and radiation, and then she had a baby. So she was high risk. She was in the hospital for probably 72 hours, and she had three different doctors there. And the one that finally was there for the delivery spent most of the time with her back toward us on the computer. So uh, I think the the thread here is that it doesn't matter where you do the delivery as long as you have some kind of continuity and somebody who's dedicated to doing that delivery. Mm-hmm. And in, yeah, I'm sorry. Oh, go for it. You brought up the issue of tub deliveries. I don't think there's any harm in it. Um, babies don't usually deliver right away anyway, but I, can, I mean, they don't usually um, breathe right away when they deliver, but you don't want them breathing a whole bunch of water in, I can tell you that. <laughs> sure, yeah. Although they have been breathing amniotic fluid for, you know, probably eight and a half months. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I, I was thinking from a technology standpoint, too, if there's that continuity, if the person was at home, and it was probably if, if there were like uh, I don't know I don't want to say other companies but like video conferencing, you know, and you were there or the doctor was there, OBGYN was there every step of the way, you know, because when you're saying these these medical deserts, and it's highly encouraged not to go to the hospital with everything that's happening with COVID nineteen. I'm just wondering if if you make that judgment call last minute, like, you know what, we're just going to have the baby at home, or is it better to plan with your doctor, you know, a trimester beforehand, like we're looking to, we're planning to have the baby at home. What's ideal? Okay. What's ideal is who who the doctor is and what is the relationship. It may Mm -hmm. be that a home birth is safer. On the other hand, if you have to scour around at the last minute to try to find a midwife, that's not a good thing either. So, Hopefully, you could talk with your doctor, and the doctor would listen and would care and would try to accommodate some of the um, um, problems associated with um, delivery and COVID. And now, I know that a lot of places, are, or at least in New York, I believe they're not letting dads in. And uh, you didn't ask me to comment on that, but I don't think it's a good idea. In other words, I think that dads should should be allowed in. They've been staying at home with their, with their wives or their mothers for the most part anyway. So they've all probably got the same thing, whatever it is. Mm. Well, it's not just, I mean, obviously from your expertise, uh, you're, you're seeing it from that aspect, but it's my understanding for anyone that goes to the hospital that their loved ones can't go with them. Um, yes, there is one exception, and that is if you're dying. There is. Ah. Your patient is dying and they have somebody with them, that person should be allowed to come to the hospital. On the other hand, 
there are people, places that are really making a hard line on this, and they're not letting anybody in. Right. It matters how much trouble the hospital is in, you know, I mean, how much overwork they are or how much resources they have. Absolutely. Well, I think it kind of goes back to what you were saying about the fragmentation of care and needing that continuity. And then it's exacerbated with the disparity that you talked about at the beginning of the hour. And so what what is a way to uh, lessen that disparity and get the continuity with the different uh, races that, as you pointed out, there's a disparity with in 2020, there's still that disparity between, you know, whites and blacks in the delivery or the mortality rate. Well, let me tell you this. Most of our um, mortality rates don't even include uh, Alaska Natives or Native Americans. So if we put them in there, we'd be looking a lot worse than we are. So... Um, solution to this. I think in the first place, we should be doing what we're doing now. We should be talking about it. We should be raising consciousness. We should be hitting up our legislators as soon as we're done with this uh, COVID thing. Um, Unfortunately, I'm not sure that anybody who's running for office now, at least on a national level, cares much about um, moms and dads and babies. Well, you you brought up a good point. You you brought up a good point when you said, you know, not to go the political slant, but uh, we see that in response to COVID-19, there are states that are taking the initiative over other states. So if there if it doesn't look as clear cut from a national standpoint, what could we do to deal with our our local representatives? Well, certainly we can we can talk with them. Um, again, I'm not sure that ours are particularly interested in it. I do think, as I've said before, consciousness raising is the way it needs to go. So thank you for this. Um, one of the things that my wife and I want to do next is to take five countries that have a maternal mortality rate of two or three and write about mm-hmm. them, write about what, how do they do that. Mm-hmm. Make it available. Um, since a lot of us are home, a lot of people are watching Netflix like crazy. And based off of what you just said, you may like the documentary Where to Invade Next. Are you familiar with that? No, I'm not, but it sounds like a good idea. Absolutely. It's, uh, I don't want to tell you the author because then it might you know, give a bias, but they, they pretty much did the same thing. They said, well, um, if we're going to – where should we invade, meaning America? Uh, we've always been in war. And what's the next country to invade? That's the premise, right? But from a comedic standpoint. And then they looked at, oh, well, what are these countries that are doing stuff well? Like they don't have the high stress, anxiety, uh, low birth mortality rate and all that, and take some of those examples and incorporate them in the state. So I think you will really enjoy that. Uh, We are very much looking forward to this book, and I hope that it will, of course, get it on the Internet as well. And... um, I do remember a couple of I, I, when I forgot your question, and I'd like to answer it. We had a couple things in, in labor and delivery that were kind of boondoggles. One of them was measuring the cervical length, and that um, was very turned out to be very expensive. 
and it didn't do any good. Mm. Another one was um, um, hydroxy uh, OHP, and that was used to stop labor, and that didn't work either. So um, we do get off on the wrong track. On the other hand, we were very late when it came to sampling um, for strep B during pregnancy. A lot of babies died before we got the official news to do that. I did it way ahead of time because I didn't want, I figured it was easy to fix, and it was. So anyway, yes, we get off on tangents sometimes. Sure. I, I do want to go back to the other countries, as you were saying earlier, that parents are kicked out too soon from the, from the hospital. And generations ago, they spent more time in uh, other countries, it seems like they're, or the other thing is they're, they're staying in hospitals longer, but the other thing is they get more uh, pater- maternity and paternity leave uh, after the baby is born. Uh, what can we do to uh, ensure that the American citizens that are having babies in the future get more time at home? Because it seems like that's additional stress of I get kicked out of the hospital too soon and I go back to work too soon. Well, yes, you raised a lot of questions there. And the first one, I think we should answer, yes, there should be paternity leave. And, yes, we should have uh, at least three months without any hassle. Yes, we should have our jobs preserved, much like National uh, Guard, you know, when they jobs back again. Punishment for, for um, being pregnant and uh, trying to make a family. Um, Certainly, it would be really good if we could keep moms and dads or moms in the hospital a little bit longer. Um, one of the things that I did, because I couldn't battle this thing by myself, was I had the patients come in early. In other words, rather than six weeks for a, you know, check your uterus and your cervix, I had them come back in a week or sooner. How are you doing? How are you, how are you is this working for you at home? And I could actually see a lot of times, you know, how they could hold the baby comfortably, you know, whether they were bonding or not, and how the breastfeeding was going. Mm-hmm. So then there are simple things to do, but, of course, uh, right now uh, we're not going in that direction. Mm. And I, I think the timeliness of, like you said, right now is so important. I want to get your take from a historical standpoint because, in recent memory, it was the 9-11 effect in that everybody said, you know what, the old way of doing things need to change, and there was a concerted effort to kind of change some of the existing things that needed change across the board, and then that kind of went back to the status quo, you know, once things died down. And we're in unprecedented waters now, but does that lend to the opportunity of making significant change once COVID-19 is over? Well, you're right. I mean, nothing is going to happen before COVID-19 is done, and we don't even know when that's going to happen, whether it's going to be June, July, August, September. I heard one place said that it was going to come back in October, so I don't know what's going to end, where that's going to end. But there are simple things that could be done. Like I said, um, they could come back sooner, or you could just give them a phone call now that uh, uh, COVID is you know, all over the place. There's a lot of yeah. things that can be accomplished on the phone. Of course, you can't see how the mom or dad is holding the baby, but you can listen to what they have to say. Mm-hmm. Hmm. 
Now, it, has, has there been research into studying the, what is it, the, um, the mother blues, what is that, postpartum depression? And is there a way to track that to ensure that that doesn't happen? And I guess that's needed continuity with the parent and the doctor. I believe that you're absolutely right. Uh, one of the reasons I used to see my patients frequently, I, I saw many patients more than once a month, and it, was, it made kind of a headache for them, my billers and for some of the other people around me, but uh, that was a, probably the best way of getting off on the right foot. In other words, I said before today, you can steer pregnancy. You can, you can move it in the direction of the desired result. And uh, there are a lot of people who don't get that, but it is, um, it is absolutely true. So the way to avoid postpartum depression is to get it under control in the pregnancy, during the pregnancy, antepartum. Mm. And yes, sometimes they do get escape and they get into the postpartum. Um, we certainly don't like to see postpartum psychosis, you know, where they start killing people. Right. The, the other part of that, um, <laughs> and it may be a, a gender question that I'm asking, uh, in a, or a stereotype, if you will, but guys are usually, I don't know, I'm in the business world, so that certainty of outcome, you hear that a lot, right? And so other, the other side may be, well, we want it to happen, have a natural process. So how, how do you keep both parties happy to experience this wonderful thing and not another uh, business incentive? Um, okay, when you say both parties, what are you referring to, mom and dad? Are you referring to... Yeah, mom and, mom and dad. Okay, all right. One of the things I really like to do during pregnancy was to have mom and dad come in um, because it's easier to get on the same page. And besides that, dads can be very helpful in labor and delivery as well as postpartum. I think that's important because, you know, another generalization is that dads feel like, you know, our hard part was the physical act, but then we don't have that bond or we can never have that bond that the mother has with the child. And so it seems like what you're saying would ensure that it's uh, the father feels that he's part of the process that's ongoing. That's exactly right. You start that in the, in the, during the prenatal course, uh, I've always welcomed my dads, my moms, and the kids. It's been always been a family business, um, and that's important too because a lot of times the child that is next closest to the baby is the one that gets hit at home. I'm not referring to physical violence. I mean, it's the pressure. That's where the pressure goes is the one that's being replaced by the new baby. If you have them come in ahead of time and get to hear the baby and talk about the baby and know where the baby is and watch the baby move, um, you have less trouble. It, it makes me think of the 80s where, uh, as a teenager, the deterrent was scared straight. And so you were in environments or you were sent to environments where you're like, oh, my goodness, if I keep on this path, this is where I'm going to wind up, and I don't want to have that happen. Do you find that you may use something similar with the maybe the dad's not taking it as seriously as I need to be 
instrumental throughout the whole birth process? You know, I, I think, and I'm saying this, I would say more than 95% of the time, this is something that comes very naturally to the dads if you incorporate them into the process from the beginning. Mm. I have seen very few dads not bond uh, well with their family. I mean, mm-hmm. provided they get the opportunity. Mm-hmm. Let me ask you this part. Uh, one thing that my family's doing right now, we're all over the world. And so with video conferencing and such, um, it feels like they're closer and it, it makes you know everyone feel better. And that's not usually the case with a lot of people where generations ago, families lived closer together. And when you talk about like maternal deserts and such, are you seeing a difference with having immediate family nearby when the, during the birth process and once the baby's born versus maybe a couple that doesn't have that support network? You know, I haven't seen, um, I haven't seen it turn out to be negative. Um, I think a lot of times the support is good and it's helpful. Sometimes it's not. Many people will replace that family support with friend support. So mm-hmm. I haven't seen it really hurt anybody uh, to be um, not to have family close. Mm-hmm. I think that's important because uh, I'm thinking from a community standpoint too, uh, the holidays were over recently and uh, we have another set of twins in the family and it's so hard just for with one baby. I'm trying to imagine multiple births and kind of being feeling having that feeling that you're on an island uh, yes yes um, it can be very lonely uh, uh, going home and uh, having a new baby it's scary lonely sometimes and that was that's the whole reason you have them come in more often prenatally and postpartum and also if we could get to the point where we wouldn't have to be so stingy with medical care in my opinion, in a country where we set out to provide care, we do a better job. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that that ranking 56, that, that really hurt. <laughs> and we're a country that likes to brag, so it seems, you know, once we get the right engine, maybe uh, with you spearheading that, uh, getting that information out there, that we can change, change that and also change just the disparity uh, of what's happening with people having children? Well, we certainly do need to change the disparity. There's no doubt about that. And, you know, just because they don't want to do the medicine the way they we are doing it, maybe we ought to be thinking in terms of, well, what would work for them? Mm-hmm. And, and hearing voices like yourself that, that are doing podcasts, what have you, are, are there plans for writing books to share this type of information or are you going to do uh, seminars for people that are planning to have babies in the near future? What, what's in the future? What's in the cards for Dr. Lindemann? Well, I would say all of those things. Like I said, the next book I want to get is the one that compares birthing for states or nations who do a good job, where they have a low maternal mortality rate. Oh, yes. My wow. wife said... you you know what and 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 probably just my competitive spirit you're kind of seeing that now 
where you have some states that seem like they're more responsive in dealing with COVID. And it, it, it would seem on, on the probably, it's not, not necessarily bad, but I know in some states in, in, in the past, if you were uh, stopping, not going forward with the pregnancy, you had to go to other states. And so if you're on the other side of it, if you're thinking, hey, I, I want to have kids, but I want to actually deliver in this state because it's better, it seems like there's incentives for the states <laughs> to keep that family in their respective states. But if you compare it, that would pu- push the envelope. You know, it's, what you're talking about is, um, I, as an experience I've actually had, I practiced for years in Fargo, which is next to Moorhead, and and the Moorhead closed their hospital. So there were a lot of people in Minnesota who were mad because they could no longer deliver in Minnesota. Mm. Um, the real point, and the, the city and the county should have gotten together and remedied that, but they didn't. Mm-hmm. And I, I think it's that that squeaky wheel gets the oil, and yeah. that Georgia, we've been getting, until recently, until recently, we were getting a lot of movies made here just because of the incentives. And so it's hospitals. Now, that's the whole issue. I want to get your take on the private versus public hospitals because that's always going to be the argument as to the, the specified or the better treatment. Are there two different worlds? You're on the inside, so I want to get your opinion on that. Well, I've, I guess for the most part, I have practiced in public hospitals. I do go to nursing homes now, and I go to several. And we have one of them is the only for-profit nursing home in the state, and that is quite a nice place. So um, they seem to do very well. One of the things they do is uh, they've got a lot of people donating um, their farms to them. So I don't know exactly how that works, but it seems to keep them uh, well supplied with, with um, everything they need. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I am... Um, sorry. No, go ahead. I, you, you were going to ask me a question, I was, so I, I interrupted you. Oh, no, no worries. I, I was just wondering, I mean, for intrinsic motivation from a homie's perspective, we co- cover a lot, and I think that, you know, not to pat myself on the back, I think I did okay in asking about you know, pregnancy or what have you, but I don't, I'm, I'm not an expert in this area. And you've given so many good examples. I, I wanted to know how people can get in touch with you if they wanted to know more information about uh, lowering the disparity and ensuring that they have that certainty of outcome that they may not be even aware of today. Okay. Website. Yes, website. And I'm going to give you to my wife who knows what it is. Oh, perfect. <laughs> it's um, uh, just Lindemann, L-I-N-D-E-M-A-N-N-M-D.com. Oh, perfect. Okay. All right. Are there plans to do – are there videos that you're planning to do about different subject matters as well? I think that would definitely help, and hopefully you don't get recruited out of your great state of North Dakota, but if we see that you're shiny – and yeah. you're, you're getting better opportunities, you might get pinched to come to another state. Well, uh, I think he could do a good job of helping people get obstetrics back in specialty 
obstetric hospitals. That is mm-hmm. the only way we've talked about this. That's the only way you're going to get obstetrics back in rural areas. So that's another topic, another book, uh, whatever. <laughs> but anyway, I will give you back well, to him. You've got another sure. question. Yeah, yes. Thank, thank you for the, the uh, LindemanMD.com for that. And um, I think we're, we're talking about, and it could be marketing, it could not be, but there's a state of emergency, right, if you're talking about obstetrics. And you're talking about the difference between the urban hospitals or the lack of hospitals in the rural areas. And that there really needs to be a push to change that or to rectify that if it would bring those, those harsh numbers that you brought out earlier, if it brings them down. I would say it's a state of emergency. I think that you're right. We need to get to 56, at least down to 30. The problem, the really scary thing is that the last time I looked at these numbers, we were 33. So we haven't gotten any better at all. As a matter of fact, we're going in the wrong direction at an exponential rate. Mm, yeah, that's, that's not encouraging. Um, like you said, with COVID maybe sticking around in different iterations, uh, that's an, an added stress that uh, may push those numbers even higher. So uh, we definitely need to um, flatten the curve, as they say, um, not just for our overall health, but just to ensure the, the success of a woman that's going through pregnancy. Yes, we do. And I'm looking forward to starting the next endeavor, which is the uh, comparison. And anybody who wants to talk or email we're ready. Absolutely. Do you want to give out a number or an email as well? Yes. Okay, email. I do most of the emailing, so it's Whiskey Creek, W-H-I-S-K-E-Y-C-R-E-E-K, at, and it's a series of four consonants, W, C is in cat, WCDDWCDD.com. That's the best. That's my uh, email address, and I'll see if somebody emails me, I'll see it right away there. Oh, perfect. Yeah, because that's usually the feedback that I've gotten from other interviews is, you know, they want to get a website, but they also may call if it's especially if sure. it's something really like for dealing with pregnancy and what have you. So I, I definitely appreciate you guys taking the time to speak and at least educate my audience in greater detail about the issues at hand and, and how we can move forward in getting a better certainty of outcome. I appreciate that. Well, the thing that we've discovered is that so few people understand how bad the rate is, the mortality rate. Mm-hmm. The, you know, I, I bring it up and people say, What? i was stuck for a second because i i was i fall into that category when you said that number it it just didn't seem real like i mean you wouldn't think that would be the case here in the united states and and i had thought it was because you know some of the people out here are you know they're elderly and they don't pay much attention to that kind of thing but Almost everybody we talk to, no matter where they are, they they haven't a clue how bad the rate is. Yeah. So yeah, we, yeah. it's great that you've given Alan an opportunity to talk about it. And anyway, you want him back? 
No, I, I think we're fine. We're going to head out now. But um, thank you again for, for all of that information. And, um, you know, I definitely want to stay in touch with you guys as we move forward because it looks like, you know, in addition to what's currently happening, uh, it's going to continue to evolve and mm-hmm. it'll be the new normal. So we're, we're going to need experts like uh, Dr. Lindemann there. Okay. Okay. Sounds great. Yeah. Thank you so, so much. Yes, you've been tuned to another episode of Intrinsic Motivation from a Homie's Perspective. This is Hamza, and thank you again, Dr. Mrs. Lindemann. Let's stay in touch. Thank you very much. Questions are good. Awesome. Cheers.